Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous songs and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre and with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, turn our hearts and minds towards you as we open your word. Strengthen our weak faith, grow us in grace, and deepen our trust and rest in Jesus today. We ask this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Joy is probably one of the first things you think of when you think about Christmas, right? Judgment, I'm guessing, is probably not. In the Psalms, especially Psalms 96, 97, and 98, part of what are often referred to as the enthronement Psalms, which focus on the eternal kingship of God, they not only put joy and judgment together, they make the two inseparable. Let me give you some quick definitions this morning. Joy is more than just bigger happiness. We often think of joy as just big happiness. It's actually more than that. Joy is infinite goodness and pleasure and love and hope that unlocks a thing to its true potential. C.S. Lewis says that joy is the longing for the way that something is truly made to be. It enhances the, it's the enhancement of a thing according to its design and its full potential. There's a trajectory to joy that looks to something's ultimate purpose being fulfilled. You see, joy is true freedom to be all that is intended. And judgment is more than just upholding the law. It's true justice and equality and equity that does not that does not oppress, it actually liberates, it actually frees, it actually unlocks true joy because it frees a thing from what is really oppressing it. You see, in the Bible, we can't get the joy we want without judgment, and we can't have the judgment we need without joy exploding. It seems like a paradox to us, though, because uh, let's be honest, to you and me, we are, we're modern people. Let's face it. We're modern people. We want joy, but we don't think that we need judgment to get it. We're relativistic in that sense. Or we think what we need is more judgment that will force and mandate joy so we never will actually experience true freedom. We're legalistic in that sense. 
We've got a paradox with two equally unhelpful responses to it. So let me give you an example. You've probably never seen a toddler exude joy when they're put in timeout, right? So the relativist doesn't punish their kids. And their kids really grow up to be miserable because they know no boundaries. And the, legali- and the legalists are more strict. They tell their kids, whatever I say goes, right? Just do what I say, it's good for you. But neither actually works because neither enhances joy. Do you see that? The relativist says that judgment is oppressive, so we need to get rid of it. But you see the problem that creates? It means that we have no basis for justice. Without judgment, you can never have justice in the world because wrongs can never be set right. Which actually means that without judgment, you can never really have joy because you can never have real freedom. Do you see that? And the legalist says what we need is stricter judgment. It tries to legislate morality. But you see the problem that that creates? You never really get freedom because moral standards always will ultimately enslave us because, let's face it, we never really live up to them. And deep down, deep down, we just don't believe that obedience to something is actually the key to our freedom. Deep down, we just don't believe that. We're too modern. If we did believe it, I would propose that we could be morally perfect, and deep down we know we never can be. So the best the legalist can get is bitter obedience, which is the actual opposite of joy. Now, of course, let me just say one caveat. I'm not saying that all judgments are just. Of course not. The Bible would be radically opposed to such a statement. I'm also not saying that judgment doesn't also lead to sorrow. We see judgment and sorrow throughout the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. What I'm getting at is that judgment leads to joy when it enhances flourishing and when it sets wrongs right, which ultimately leads to joy. In other words, judgment that doesn't lead to, the, to flourishing only creates bitterness. And joy without judgment is really just superficial. This isn't just a biblical idea that I'm presenting you, though. Um, Aristotle, when he talked about kingship, uh, which he thought kingship was the best form of government because when a king was just and led with equity, a good king renders just judgments and and they promote the flourishing of their people. They help them be all that they are made to be. And ancient literature understood this as well. You see, the ancients put joy and judgment together because they understood that for people to be all they were made to be, both joy and judgment were necessary. Both setting wrongs right and enhancing flourishing. You see, the ancients knew that you must have a king who will set all things right and cleanse all that is evil from their lands and create a just world where everything flourishes as it was made to be. A just king enhances, not oppresses. See, when you read C.S. Lewis and you read his Narnia books, you see this. There's a golden age of Narnia where there are kings and queens who undo all evil in the land and they usher in a golden age of flourishing and peace for all people. It's what Tolkien's Return of the King is all about, by the way. 
When the rightful king returns, there will be peace and flourishing in all the earth. There will be great joy through the judgment of the king. Today, friends, do we not long for a golden age? We desire to be all that we were made to be. And conservatives will argue that the golden age is in the past and we need to reclaim it. Progressives will argue that it's in the future and we need to build it. But the Bible argues that our golden age is in the future because of what has been done in the past. It is neither a revolutionary reclaiming of what was, nor a self-made utopia of what could be, but a redemptively driven flourishing for all that will be. You see, it's restorative. It consumes all of reality, spreading to every square inch of the universe. We long to be all that we were made to be, for infinite joy and flourishing. We're all evil, and the end is undone, where justice and peace and equity are established, and everything is freed from oppression. And deep down, we know that we are not right. And I'm proposing to you subtly, not so subtly now, that we long for a cosmic king because, he is, because his just reign means that we will be enhanced and we will be all that we are made to be. So let's look at Psalm 98, just two things, joy and judgment. First, joy. On the surface, this psalm seems to be about worship, and it is. It's a very worshipful psalm, so much so that it's a part of the church's evening prayer service in a lot of traditions. But the end of verse 9 creates a paradox. How does worship and judgment go together? We must solve the paradox. To do so, we must see how the psalm presents joy. Three quick things. First, joy is from God. Verse 1. A new song. A new song is the Bible's way of saying that something has happened worthy of a new song commemorating what has been done. And the second part of verses 1 and 2 cue us into what that new song is in response to. It's the language of victory, specifically military victory. You see, Psalm 98 was Israel's psalm that they would sing after Israel would have military victories. There's almost this connection to their salvation caught up in this psalm because the Bible understands salvation to be more than what happens in the afterlife. It's comprehensive of all of reality becoming what it is made to be in the end. There's this ultimate purpose being realized through God's victories and Israel is receiving a shadow of it, a whisper of it. True potential is being unleashed. Israel's flourishing depends upon God giving them victory and the peace of his kingship spreading to all of Israel's life. You see, the psalm connects God's justice and his rule, his cosmic peace and order to his victories over Israel's enemies because in God's victories, Israel has ultimate joy and flourishes as God is their king. You see, God is their warrior king who enhances their flourishing and freedom so that Israel can be all that they are made to be. Do you see that? Second, joy is expansive. God's victory extends beyond just Israel, though. Look at verse 2. The scope of God's victory extends beyond simply Israel. It extends to the nations. 
You know, the book of Daniel is about Israel being in exile in the nation of Babylon. And the marvelous things that God does publicly leads to the king of Babylon and subsequently the nation of Babylon to acknowledge and worship Israel's God. What God does publicly leads the nations to worship. And what God's people do also expands the scope of joy. You know, Jeremiah 29, also Israel in exile. God's people are commanded to seek the welfare, the peace, the shalom, it means, of the the nation of Babylon while they are in exile. They're commanded to invest in the peace of the city. Even if it's just a whisper, a whisper, a shadow of salvation, the peace of Babylon becomes an extension and scope of, of the scope of God's very peace in the world. You see, even a whisper, even a whisper of God's peace expands the joy of God in all the nations. Do you see that? And God's people are commanded to, to, to bring that peace, to participate in it, to invest. Look at the middle of verses, in the middle section, verses four through six. It describes the worship of Israel in the temple. And Psalm 98 would would be sung as Israel's armies would come marching back to Jerusalem and the people would gather all through the temple and praise God and it would be loud. And the armies would return and they would praise God for their victory in battle. The scope of joy expands into their worship, which is the very center of Israel's life. It's the temple around which every other part of their life orbits around their worship. Third, joy is also inclusive. You see, the first section of the psalm, notice this, there's this movement. You have Israel worshiping God for his victory while the nations witness. In the second section, you have other nations joining in response. The whole earth joins in song. It's not just Israel. The whole earth becomes God's sanctuary, not just the temple. Do you see that movement? Joy extends to every square inch. It makes foreigners friends. It makes strangers companions. It makes enemies family under God's kingship. Do you see that? You see, joy is expansive and it's also inclusive. It brings the outsider in. You know, the end of the book of Joel has this very interesting text, this very interesting verse. It says, no strangers will pass through Jerusalem again. What does that mean? Does that mean they're going to build walls and a dome and keep everybody out forever? No, that's not what it means. It's a fulfillment. It's a fulfillment of of Israel becoming all that God intended them to be. It's what Paul says in chapter, Ephesians chapter 2. That the dividing wall between people, between Jew and Greek, between, between male and female, between the races will be broken down. Under God's kingship, the outsider is brought in. It's the fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham. That the outsider will be brought into the very house of God and worship him. That God will become the king to the whole earth, to all the nations. That every knee would bow, every tongue would confess. It's a fulfillment. Look at verse 3. That's what that language is. It's covenant language. It's the promise that God made to Abraham that God's people would include 
all peoples, not just Israel. This is fulfillment, language. Joy expands as God's peace expands to include even those who were once strangers. And it makes the enemy family. Do you see that? And it also extends to the very creation itself. Look at verses 7 and 8. The very waters of the sea and the hills themselves join in response. You see, Genesis chapter 3 tells us why the world is not the way it's supposed to be. The curse of sin, which is essentially rejecting God as our king, disrupting his cosmic peace, leads to the curse of sin oppressing every square inch of creation. It includes the very earth itself. This is what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. Sin, Genesis 3 tells us that sin makes everything not the way it's supposed to be. Nothing is as it ought to be. Paul says the very creation itself is groaning under that curse of sin. It's oppressed under the tyranny of sin. The sea and the hills, they groan. They groan for joy. This is not merely figurative language. You see, Christianity has a high view of the created order. One, because God creates everything. Two, he calls it all very good. Three, he gives humanity dominion over it to care for it, to bring forth flourishing, to extend God's peace. And fourth, finally, the very earth itself will be part of God's cosmic redemption and restoration one day. It will be one day as it ought to be. You see, our sin oppresses the very earth. But God's peace unleashes its joy through the restoration of nature itself. Do you see that? You see, joy is all-encompassing because it comes from God, the eternal king who ushers in the golden age of the earth where everything, the creation itself, becomes all that it is made to be. It's under his kingship that the whole earth, you, me, the very creation, experiences true freedom. But we are not the way we are made to be in our current state. We're not the way we are made to be right now in our current state. We are not as we ought. There is oppression. And we are each a prisoner to the captivity of joylessness under the tyranny of sin. Nothing is as it ought to be. Deep down, we each know this. Cosmic treason against the eternal king is not freeing us, it's oppressing us. You see, C.S. Lewis called that the nightmare of the current human condition. Being a prisoner to a world trapped in the bondage of sin. And deep down, we each know this, that we are not as we should be. So the psalm is saying, verse 9, we will never have that joy without judgment. Do you see that? Second thing, judgment. One pastor puts it like this. Without judgment, without things being set right and our full potential unleashed, what hope is there for the world? You see, without judgment, there is no justice, which means there is no true freedom. Without judgment, there is no real hope for the world. And if there's no hope, then nothing you do in this life or on this earth ultimately actually matters. But judgment means that everything does matter. 
since one day it'll all be set right. But if there is judgment, without judgment there's no hope for the world, but if there is judgment, what hope is there for people who not only have been victims to wrong, but have done wrong themselves? Look at verse 9. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. What hope is there without judgment, but what hope is there with it? A king cannot set all things right. They cannot purge evil without justice being satisfied. You see, payment is demanded either from the judged or the judge. You see, God is not just some earthly king, though. He is eternally holy, perfect, and just. What has been done wrong, the rejection of his kingship, the disordering of his peace, demands justice. If he does nothing about injustice, he must not be, really be that serious about his own holiness. And if he can't do anything about it, he must not really be that big of a king. He'd be too weak to do anything about it. And if sin is essentially cosmic treason against an eternal king, a king who must demand payment, to forego payment is to devalue the injustice of sin, and there can never be true freedom. Do you see that? So go back to verses 1 and 3. How does the paradox get solved? It's right here. Commentators will point out something about Psalm 98. Psalm 98 connects two major events in the Bible. Exodus chapter 15 and Luke chapter 1. They're songs of two women singing about the liberation of God's people and the whole creation. See, in Exodus 15, the nation of Israel has been delivered from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. They miraculously cross through the Red Sea and their Egyptian oppressors are defeated. God defeats his and Israel's enemies with the waters of judgment by giving the Egyptians justice. He gives them justice so that Israel can be freed from bondage and enter into the promised land and enter into God's very peace. You see, God gives justice to the earth so that Israel can receive joy. They receive a whisper of salvation through judgment. Do you see that? James Hamilton is a biblical scholar. He traces the theme of salvation through judgment throughout the entire Bible. He actually argues that the key to understanding the Bible is to understand this. So if you get this, you can unlock the whole meaning of the Bible. He actually, uh, here's what he says. I'm going to just elaborate by paraphrasing what he says. Israel is delivered from the bondage of slavery through judgment. But because God is both holy and just, his judgment is equally due to both the Egyptian and the Israelite. God cannot forgo payment demanded for either's sins. So what does God do? Hamilton says this, God sends an angel, an angel of judgment, to Egypt to judge the nation equitably, both peoples. But God tells Israel to take a perfect lamb and to sacrifice it. 
than to take its blood and mark the doorpost of the home with the blood around the door. And the angel of judgment will pass over the home. You see, the lamb, the lamb is a substitute. It is payment for sin in place of the wrongdoer. And it's through this judgment that God delivers Israel from their enemies by giving them mercy. You see what's happening? Israel is delivered through judgment. But the judgment does not fall on them. Because God gives them a substitute to satisfy his own justice. Luke chapter 1, Mary sings that the one who will deliver the earth from all injustice, all injustice, and usher in the earth's golden age, is Jesus Christ. He will come to judge the earth with equity, John 5 tells us. But first, the judge will be judged. He will be the substitute on whom the just judgment is cast. So that God's people can be delivered from the bondage of sin and death. The judge is judged and offers himself as payment to satisfy his own justice. So that we can become all that we are made to be by receiving not condemnation, but mercy. Jesus Christ satisfies God's judgment God's justice by taking on the judgment that you and I deserve for our sins by going to the cross. His blood is spilt to cover us. He becomes our substitute so that his judgment can pass over us and land on himself. He frees us from the oppression of sin and death. He gives us peace with God by giving us himself. And he solves the paradox through the promise of pardon. He cleanses us, not with the waters of judgment, but with the waters of grace. So that we can become his very children. You see, the Christian's judgment day is finished. Because it was in the past. On the cross, the judgment that you and I deserved was rendered onto Jesus so that we could have infinite joy and become all that we are made to be. God became man to live the life that we couldn't, die the death that we deserved, take the judgment that we ought to have received, and gives us mercy so that we can have joy. He transforms what we are so that we can be like him. So friend, what is joy today? It's what Milton in Paradise Lost called the longing for paradise regained. Joy is longing for paradise regained. You know, there's a famous hymn writer who wrote a famous hymn about Psalm 98 that we sing at Christmas time a lot. But it's not actually about Jesus' first coming. It's about his second coming. It's about the return of the king and the golden age of the earth when grace will restore every square inch. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. 
Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. He unleashes the full potential of creation. Friend, what is joy? It's longing for that world. Long for that world and you will find infinite joy. Father, give us joy that only comes from you. Give us joy that longs to be all that we are, all that we're made to be. Give us joy that only comes from your grace and mercy toward us. You gave us peace with yourself by absorbing the judgment we deserve so that we can extend your peace now to the world. Give us strength to be peacemakers as we long for the world to come. And come quickly, Lord, to make everything right and to make everything all as it is, as make everything as it has always been made to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.